you know, I want to just go back to the science center just for fun and just do all those cool little stations. Oh my God, they had. The best. I love those. My yeah. friend and I went one time before COVID just mm-hmm. to walk around because we were like, we haven't gone since elementary school. Let's go. I got a ticket and just walked around the whole place and we're like, oh my God. <laughs> yeah. It's gigantic. Like, it's a lot bigger yeah. than I remember, you know? Exactly. Oh, no. oh my yeah. gosh. Oh, really? Because I always. You know, when you go back to your childhood places, you mm-hmm. have this like perception of it that it's going to be huge. And and that's because you were so tiny. But then you go back to the place as an adult and you're like, oh, wait, this is not as big as I thought it would be. No, but- this place is huge. We were walking yeah. around for hours. Yeah. Like maybe just when you walk in, like, I don't know if you know anyone from the GTA. <laughs> like if you've gone on a field trip, you walk in and there's like lockers and these little mm-hmm. pods. And oh, those are yeah. built for like little kids, right? Mm-hmm. And like when you actually walk into the place, it's basically like walking into a museum. We're just looking around and like, what? <laughs> Uh, when you you return as like someone who knows a lot of science and you actually read everything and you ask questions it occupies a lot of your time bigger in that sense like you actually stand more now oh my god yeah yeah (laughs) yeah that actually makes sense i think as a kid you you never read those little no like yeah they had like that little paper make your own paper stand and stuff like that like that's what i would do there yeah. Welcome, everybody, to Coffee and Steam Podcast, where we choose scientific accessibility over jargon and coffee over all other beverages. So grab your cup of coffee or beverage of your preference. We won't be offended if it's not coffee and get ready for some steam. We're so excited to welcome our guest for today, who's quite a special one. Welcome, Rishali, to Coffee and Steam. Hi, everyone. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for having me, guys. Oh, of course. So now, Rishali just finished her final semester of biomedical sciences at York. And she actually just defended her thesis. So let's give her a round of applause for that. She's been working on a lot of interesting studies on campus, and she's been a part of some fun projects with places like the Ontario Science Centre. Honestly, that's actually one of my favorite places. <laughs> Mine too. <laughs> so tell us a little bit more about yourself. Um, Of course. So you've already given a lovely introduction about my academic background. Thank you so much. Um, I guess I'll tell the audience something else about me. I am a somewhat creative person. At least I like to think of myself as one. I love painting and photography, and I usually engage in these activities anytime I need to de-stress. And I'm also a huge foodie, and I love traveling. And my favorite trip I ever took was to Peru and it was then that I fell in love with picarones. Forgive me if I'm pronouncing that wrong. So do you want to tell us what picarones are? Because I have no idea. (laughs) Okay so they're like a donut but they have like Boston cream or some sort of Peruvian cream filled inside. Like they are delicious. Peruvian like street food. It's very popular there. Oh my god. Do I have to travel to Peru to eat this? Because I will. (laughs) If you go, call me. Like, I'll join. I love it there. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. That sounds so good. Yeah, okay. it does. Okay. On the topic of, like, food, though. Go on. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, you made a good point. You know, so, you know, scientists have the stereotype that, you know, we may not be creative, but I think we are very creative and we <laughs> all have hobbies 
despite what media tells us, we're just not spending 24 hours in the lab. Maybe, maybe not. <laughs> um, okay, so as we do with all our guests, we have a burning question for you before getting into this episode. So as you know, Guy 3 and I are both coffee obsessed. And in the spirit of the holiday season, if you were to describe yourself as a holiday drink, what would you be? Oh, oh my god. Um, let's see. Um, I would have to pick a cup of hot chocolate. My reason being, it's a go-to drink. People love it all year round. And I think I even read a paper that said that it shows to improve cognitive function and mood. So I think I'm on a cup of hot chocolate. Like I'm easy going and people love me. Yeah, that yeah, I guess because it has chocolate and it, it releases that serotonin in the brain. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> um, okay, so now that's out of the way, let's dive into the fun stuff. First off, Rishali, why don't you tell us a little bit more about yourself and what has inspired your research journey so far? Oh my god, I'd love to. Um, so the motivation to pursue a degree in biology or biomedical sciences came from my passion for STEAM. I used to love chemistry, physics, and especially biology in high school because it helped me understand, you know, how things around me work, how my body worked. Everything we know about the universe, from how it was created to what an atom is made of, is all the result of scientific research and experiment. So I chose to come to York to pursue my degree because, well, I mean, it was close to home, but also because there are some great professors here doing incredible research. And when we first started, I was learning all these interesting facts and theories, and I was reading papers about these amazing primary research studies. But when you're in a lecture hall, you don't really get to see all these things in action. And I've always been someone who wants to contribute to society in any way that I can. So I wanted to find out how the material I was learning was actually applicable to and helpful for the real world. So I began emailing professors whose research I was interested in. And I actually received an offer from Dr. Rob Allison. So he has a virtual reality and perception lab on campus which is something completely different from my major, but he was kind enough to teach me everything from scratch. Um, I like to think of him as kind of the kickstart of my ac or my research journey. And Dr. Allison then teamed up with two other professors and invited me to be a research assistant for another virtual reality experiment that was taking place at the Ontario Science Center. And though I was so honored and excited to have had the opportunity to work with Dr. Allison for so long, I decided it was time to nourish my wet lab skills as a biology student. So I contacted professors again, and this time I narrowed it down to those of only the biology department. And Dr. Patricia Lacken Thomas offered me a position as a research assistant, and I loved her and the lab and the postdoc position or the postdoc people so much that I returned as an honors student student at the same lab. Oh my God, that sounds so cool. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah, that sounds amazing. And I know Dr. Pat, myself, she was my prof. Um, she was also on my honors thesis committee and she was amazing. Oh, she is the best. <laughs> she is literally the reason I am the person in academic form today. She is an incredible human being. Yes, oh, yes. so sweet. There's always those people that you meet and you're like, oh my God, okay, monumental mm -hmm. person. There we go. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> 
Johnny, I have a question for you. Shoot. Fine. Wet lab for our audience, but also for me. <laughs> okay. So um, there are wet labs and dry labs. So let me start with a dry lab. So a dry lab often utilizes more computer-generated models or simulations, often involves a lot of computational and mathematical-based uh, research. While in comparison, a wet lab is often where we have the chemicals going and the buds inverters firing and a lot of <laughs> drugs and animals and even bugs. Um, so this is where a lot of, you know, drug-based research, a lot of disease-based research uh, happens in, in a wet lab. And um, both are very valid forms of research, just done very using different methods. Oh, interesting. Thank you for that. Hmm. Okay, so why don't you actually tell our listeners a little bit more about your thesis work? That actually sounds really cool. Yes, of course. So my thesis studied the TOR pathway. Um, TOR stands for the target of rapamycin. Rapamycin is this drug and it is a signaling cascade and it is known to control cellular growth, proliferation, and stress responses. So previous studies have used this um, model organism, which is a fungus, um, to show that the TOR pathway also regulates circadian rhythm, um, which is an internal 24-hour timekeeper that is activated using external signals to determine the optimal times for biological functions to occur. So for my thesis, I confirmed and tested that inhibitors of the TOR pathway should affect clock functions or rhythmicity and that the TOR pathway does indeed regulate growth in the fungus I was testing. Um, so the inhibitor I used was called TORIN and my thought was that if the drug can alter the wild type, so the natural occurring fungus's rhythmicity and growth, I think this proves that A, the TOR pathway is so heavily involved in the fungus, and B, that there is some sort of analogical relationship between mammalian TOR and fungal TOR, because the drug I was using had only been tested on mammals in the past. And if um, I didn't see any alterations, then I guess future researchers can turn to alternative cellular pathways to look for what actually controls growth and rhythmicity. Wow. Yeah. That's that's really cool. Um so the Torin, as you mentioned, the drug that you tested on uh, mm -hmm. fungus. So it essentially inhibited um, the TOR pathway, which is known to regulate your circadian rhythm or the internal clock in fungus. Yes, exactly. So the drug mm. inhibits the two smaller complexes of TOR. So TOR is a protein or a kinase, and there are two complexes, and the TORIN inhibits both of those. Wow. Yeah. So um, what is TORIN used for in, as you said, it was tested in mammals. So what did they initially use it in mm -hmm. mammals for? So taurin, because it inhibits TOR, and TOR mm -hmm. is a pathway that is so heavily involved in a lot of our biological processes, mm -hmm. a lot of these studies were actually testing it as a drug that could um, treat cancer. 
Mm-hmm. So if um, TOR leads to uncontrolled cellular proliferation and growth, mm-hmm. and if there and if we can inhibit TOR to control that, then we would essentially be controlling tumorogenesis. So that is what predominantly it has been tested on. But um, for circadian rhythmicity, I don't want to make the claim that I was the first one to do it, but I'm sure there are other researchers out there who just don't have published work. But it was novel, so it was very difficult designing these experiments because mm-hmm. there wasn't a lot of information on how the drug affects fungus, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's actually really cool. So um, if taurine is, you know, potentially used for um, cancer, so it could potentially impact circadian rhythm mm-hmm. um, in humans. But of course, again, this would need to be studied, so I yeah. don't want to make any claims. <laughs> but um, <laughs> yeah, so it's it might potentially impact the circadian rhythm is what you're saying yes exactly cool and so you know for our listeners our, the goal of our podcast is to help everybody learn a little bit more about all these scientific concepts and how they're applicable in real life situations so we've learned a lot about tor and its role in humans and cancer and now in fungus and circadian rhythm so could you maybe elaborate a little bit more about what exactly circadian rhythm is and how it's critical to all of our health yes of course so um Let's start with this. So Earth's daily solar cycle causes expected changes in light and temperature. And such a cycle demands that organisms have a way to sense their environment so that they can optimize their physiology and behavior. And the possession of some sort of endogenous or internal clock is a property that organisms in all domains of life are thought to have. And this clock is what generates these daily rhythms or what we call circadian rhythms. Basically what these rhythms are doing is that they're helping biological processes like the sleep-wake cycle, metabolism or cellular repair to name a few things, occur in the appropriate sequence at the right place and at the most optimal time. Um, These rhythms also kind of direct the body to bring the right quantity and type of biological molecules um, like carbohydrates, proteins, amino acids to their needed location um, kind of ahead of time so that the pull process can reach maximum effectiveness. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I guess that kind of explains like when we wake up, why we essentially get hungry our body's prepping for that. Uh, it, does it kind of explain those fa- factors throughout the day as well? Yes, exactly. That is an <clears throat> excellent example. That is perfect. So when we're sleeping, our body kind of gets ready and prepares our metabolic state for the next awakening or the next day. So it's our body's way of being prepared for what is coming. So um, what would be maybe some potential side effects if your, you know, circadian rhythm is out of balance? So let's say um, many individuals work night shifts mm-hmm. and that can throw off your rhythm. And what, what kind of impact can that have on your health? Do you know? That's an excellent question. And <clears throat> such disturbances in circadian rhythms are actually linked to conditions like depression or cardiovascular abnormalities, genitory dysfunctions. Um, In fact, a lot of epidemiological studies show that those who work night shifts are at a higher risk of developing cancer, with the suggested causation being disruption of circadian machinery in different organs and in different tissues. 
And um, immunology is actually my one of my favorite subjects. So mm -hmm. I did a lot of research of how my thesis could be applied to it. And I found some really interesting things. So researchers actually found that, you know, things like white blood cells, which are key cells of our immune system, oscillate on a daily basis in healthy humans. Even symptoms like asthma, like, you know, coughing or, um, are associated with higher levels of inflammation in the lungs and they're usually the worst in the night or early mornings so these kind of observations suggest that there is a strong molecular connection between fields like immunology and circadian rhythmicity and disruption in circadian rhythmicity leads to leads to a lot of diseases so i think these sort of connections have to be taken advantage of to design better more better treatment options you know mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah that actually totally makes sense because you know i've noticed if i've had allergies they get aggravated more and during certain times mm -hmm. more more so than others and that's actually an interesting point and i think circadian rhythm is often overlooked in mm -hmm. terms of exactly. disease and disorders so it's your research is really interesting yeah. Thank you. Yeah, it is. I honestly, so chronobiology is the study of rhythmicity and there aren't too many courses offered at York about it. And there's so little labs in the GTA that focus on it. So I think mm -hmm. this issue and this topic needs to be, you know, further explored because there's so much potential for applications to medicine and it's an incredible field. Please tell me another definition question for you. <laughs> Um, can you please define experimental model for us? So often scientists um, use different experimental models depending on their research. So a uh, model actually can be anything from a bug. So some people may uh, use um, mosquitoes, even fish like zebra fish or uh, something more advanced. Uh, often mice and rats are used for a lot of types of research so essentially we have a initially we have a control model so which is our healthy model nothing is manipulated in this model so for example if you're using mice you'll have just normal mice nothing is manipulated um, in these and then you'll have your experimental model which may potentially be a disease model potentially maybe a particular gene may be knocked out uh, something will be changed or maybe you'll be testing a drug or chemical on that uh, on those mice so then all these comparisons are then made back to that healthy control model you have and then we're able to see whether there are actual changes when we compare back to the healthy or control model mm, cool thank you mm. So my question for you, because I know how we've learned about circadian rhythm in humans now, what made you choose fungus as your experimental model for your thesis? Of course. So um, the fungus I used was called um, Neurospora crassa. And this fungus has a rich history of 80 years in the lab. So it has been used to explain complex biological topics like epigenetics or even development. And with a rich history, there is usually an extensive database accompanied. So there is a lot of information available about, you know, usage of the organisms. There's a map of its entire genome. And all of this information is really easily available online. 
Um, Neurospore is actually very easy to kind of handle in the lab. It easily grows in culture. It has a haploid life cycle. So any typical complications with using diploid organisms like um, the dominance of particular alleles is not an issue with the fungus. Um, for my research in particular for rhythmicity, I use the fungus because it has a clock output that is very easily assayed. Um, a lot of my experiments in the thesis used race tubes, which are essentially 30 centimeter long tubes with two open ends. You can um, put in some solid growth media inside the tubes and let the fungus grow inside of them. And when it grows, it produces these bands that kind of exchange between plentiful fungal growth and less fungal growth, just kind of due to the way the organism's rhythmicity is structured. And then when we alter the conditions the fungus is growing in, the bands change and we can analyze these alterations to parameters, um, to analyze parameters of rhythmicity, like the period, phase, or amplitude. Mm, yeah, that's actually really interesting. I think I remember passing by Dr. Pat's lab and I used to see the long race tubes and yeah. the fungus and her lab is huge. <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> oh my god, yeah. that sounds sick. Yeah. So you also work on another branch of research at the Virtual Reality and Perception Lab. Um, mm -hmm. Can you actually elaborate your role here and how is this VR being used? Like, that's sick. <laughs> I know, it was so fascinating. Um, I would like to bring up a project I specifically worked on, which is my favorite. It was called the Ice Cube. Um, the ice cube is actually a structure that is located deep within the ice of the South Pole. Um, it is gigantic, like that structure is gigantic. I think it encompasses a whole like cubic kilometer of ice. Um, it is designed to observe the cosmos. So what it does is that it picks up signals from subatomic particles called neutrinos. And neutrinos are massless, high-energy particles that are like messengers. They provide information about astrophysical events like, you know, the explosion of stars or gamma ray bursts or even black holes, neutron stars. Um, they make excellent messengers because um, the particles travel at almost the speed of light. I'm not sure of the exact mm -hmm. number. And they travel in a straight line, so they can literally come from the edge of the universe to Earth without being deflected by anything, like being deflected by magnetic fields or being absorbed by any matter. So when the ice cube at the South Pole detects these neutrinos, it produces a light pattern that can be analyzed to discover more information about our universe. So this information was kind of the inspiration for the project at the lab I worked at. So we made a smaller replica of the structure at the South Pole and we programmed it in a way that would so that it would display typical neutrino signals. Um, the goal was to understand the learning curve that participants underwent when trying to learn to perceive neutrino signals that became gradually more complex. So for my role, I was part of the team that coded these signals and went through the stimulation numerous times to kind of, you know, debug any issues, um, work out anything that might be an issue when we actually test um, participants. And another role I had was to gain a thorough understanding of the theoretical design so that I can make all of the paperwork. 
So anytime in academia, if we want to use human participants, there is a lot of paperwork that needs to be filled out involving ethics. And that was, you know, that took a lot of time. And that is what I spent a lot of hours doing for this project. <laughs> wow. But writing, sorry, writing ethics is a very useful skill. And I've, mm-hmm. I've done it for animal work, like helped with it. But I'm sure for human related work, it's it's a lot more extensive. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, definitely. And it's very transferable. Like, um, mm-hmm. if anyone is interested in pursuing biology research, like mm-hmm. there's going to be clinical trials involved at one stage. And mm-hmm. you know, there are so many ethics involved with conducting mm-hmm. clinical trials. Yes. So having that skill, um, I think would be an asset to any company. So yeah, it's fantastic. Take notes, guys. <laughs> yeah, guy three can speak to that. Yeah, I actually work involved. on clinical trials. So like, oh, there's incredible. so much paperwork involved. Oh, I can. So many paycheck rules. <laughs> it's yeah, but it's it's great. It, you can see it anywhere in human research. So mm-hmm. yeah, <laughs> it's part of the process, right? Part of the Basically. process of making an impact. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so actually one follow-up question I do have is uh, why build the actual ice cube at the South Pole and why did you pick that structure to replicate for your project? Okay, so I'll answer the second question first. So our goal was to understand perception and participants would typically have a harder time understanding and perceiving something they have absolutely no exposure to or experience with. Like, I didn't know what the ice cube was or how neutrino particles are displayed on it before I worked with Dr. Allison. So we kind of wanted to test how they can learn to understand something that is completely out of the blue, which is why we use the ice cube model. Plus, it's really cool and neat. So, you know, why not? (laughs) And um, for why the original is built at the South Pole... I do believe that the reason is to detect the light that is given off when the neutrinos and other secondary particles hit the structure. So it does need to be surrounded by a transparent material like ice. And a lot of ice actually contains air bubbles in it, but the South Pole ice is really nice and thick. So it just allows for, you know, a clearer interpretation and analysis of the data. Yeah, that makes total sense. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, Rashali, that sounds so amazing that you're involved in both circadian rhythm research and VR research. They're completely two uh, different fields. But you also mentioned that you have additional experience at the Science Center. That is so cool. And it brings back such uh, fond childhood memories for me. What was your role and how was your experience at the Science Center? Okay, so it was incredible. Um, I was a research assistant on something called um, the Vection Project. And I was kind of, I was in charge of data collection, data analysis, and um, testing the experiment on participa- participants. So um, it was a virtual reality experiment. And to give you guys a little more background, the word vection is defined as a feeling that you are moving even though you are immobile, which is usually brought on by seeing something moving. Um, So for instance, you may have experienced vection in the subway while observing a nearby train arrive or leave. 
So despite actually remaining immobile, you may have felt a convincing sensation that the train moved in the opposite direction. So that illusion, self, that illusion of self-motion is what Vection is. So Vection is very dangerous for astronauts as it causes them to misinterpret the direction and speed for other object, of other objects. And we used virtual reality to assess how astronauts and crew members judge distances and process their own movement in such a virtual reality environment while experiencing weightlessness. Mm -hmm. So the ultimate goal was to help design ways of moving around the International Space Station. So it was thought that the weightlessness also affected the astronauts' perception of their surroundings. So I unfortunately didn't have the opportunity to observe how astronauts were um, how astronauts actually performed in the study, but we ran the same experiment um, that we ran on the astronauts on the participant center, and these were essentially our control group. Um, so these were people that were not experiencing weightlessness. You know, they're on Earth. <laughs> Gravity is a thing. Yeah. <laughs> So essentially, we what we did, what we what the participants saw on the VR headset was that we stimulated motion down a path in the headset. There was an object that they saw before any movement began, and their role was to estimate when they arrived at the position of where the object was previously standing. Um, if there was over or underestimation, then this would be an indication that they are experiencing infection. And to highlight some of the key findings from our data, we actually saw that participants indicated that they traveled further if there was vertical jitter. So jitter was kind of the way the VR movement was programmed to move. So if the participants are seeing something that is bobbing up and down, that's what vertical jitter is, for instance. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. The effectiveness of the display increased with age over all jitter conditions. So basically, if you were older, you performed worse and you experienced more vection. Um, there was absolutely no differences between the sexes, and mm -hmm. um, it is studies like this that provide unique and valuable insight into perceptual processes. That is, and these are a truly representative of the sample because we had participants from various backgrounds, various ages, you know, various groups of people. So it was very um, inclusive, our study. Mm -hmm. And I believe we are still in the process of actually applying this information to the International Space Station. But I mean, I am still excited to have been a small part of this process. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, that actually sounds really amazing. And, you know, I think it takes a village almost yeah. to get a research study <laughs> out. There's so um, many people yeah. involved. Yeah. So, so your small parts. part with a big part. Yeah. Also <laughs> being on there. Like there there are just so many people that are involved that are, you know, not seen. They're working in the background. Um they may not even be on the publication, but they they help the researchers um essentially, right? So mm -hmm. yeah. There was so much. Like we had the object that the participants were viewing at the science center was actually this cute little bunny. And oh. I remember, yeah, it was cutest thing and we actually hired like a professional um artist who had graduated from york to design her oh wow, wow. so cute like you know it just goes to show how much work is actually put into yeah mm -hmm. 
like a graphic designer involved in a VR project. Like yeah. you have all of your scientists. Exactly. That's insane. Yeah. yeah. It does take a village. That's crazy. It takes a village. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so now we've learned a lot about your research and you're so young too, you're an undergrad. So we want to shift the scope a little bit to mm -hmm. ask you a little bit about some advice you would provide to some fresh undergrad students. Anyone who's interested in dipping their toes into research or looking for any extracurricular opportunities. And you went to York. So mm -hmm. do you have any campus resources you might recommend or if there's anything in particular that helped you get started? Um, okay, so I think the most generic advice I can give is don't be shy and just email anyone you are interested in working with. Mm -hmm. um, for resources, I think the York Writing Services are phenomenal. Um, so when you are going to be reaching out to professors asking to join their lab, a good email with valuable content and a good resume is absolutely crucial. Mm -hmm. So I would suggest, you know, type out some drafts of these emails and ask the people at the writing center to kind of look over it and edit it. And, you know, York also has some great workshops on resume building. And I think a good, strongly formatted resume would definitely help you stick out in a crowd. Because keep in mind, professors are getting hundreds of these emails on like, you know, a weekly basis. So do anything you can to stand out in the crowd. Um, I'd also advise everyone to not limit yourself to research within your major. Like I performed research that was in VR and that was something that I had had no previous exposure to. So do, you know, do visit other labs, reach out to faculty members in other departments. You will never know what skills you gain that will be transferable. So, you know, we talked about ethics and I made documents at the virtual reality and perception lab. And if I wanted to do clinical trials um, as part of my STEM career, you know, that's a great skill that I already have had exposure to. Um, when I worked at the Science Center, um, we used different programs like Microsoft Excel um, to analyze and organize the data. And that is a skill that is required for any lab in science. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. don't, <laughs> don't be shy, you know, just go for it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think that's often a misconception in research where, okay, let's say you yeah. pick a topic like psychology or VR, mm -hmm. you know, circadian, it means, oh, you just have to stick to that field. Your skills are only going to be useful for that field. And it's really not. You learn so many skills yeah, that are transferable to mm -hmm. different fields. And that's that's what is very cool about research. Mm -hmm. um, I like, never mm -hmm. underestimate that too, exactly. Like mm -hmm. ultimately when you do go to apply anywhere, everybody should know how to write an email, should know how to reach out. And I know, Shalini and I, we probably will be discussing this quite often in all of our episodes. <laughs> but it's so important. Like, don't overlook that skill. Don't mm -hmm. be like, I'm an expert in the topic. That's it. Like, no. Like, you also have to do the work. So, like... Mm -hmm. Writing skills are great. And like, mm -hmm. you know, I personally went to UTSC and we had a place called the Academic Advising and Career Center. And oh. they also have like writing advisors and pe like people who will edit your papers, help you write your resume. So resources like that, like honestly, just reach out to anybody on campus, wherever you go, listeners, mm -hmm. if you're an undergrad. <laughs> mm -hmm. And you're definitely bound to find a center like this, but then also like learn how to use these skills and like, yeah, reach out to people. Mm -hmm. yeah. so important um and you know shani and i were both lucky that we kind of <laughs> we graduated undergrad right before 
COVID. <laughs> and yeah. so, you know, we know how important it is to gain research experience in person, meet with people in person. Networking is also hard virtually. But, you know, what are some advice, what are some tips or some advice that you might want to tell students who are currently researching all these research opportunities, but in now a pandemic scope? Ooh, okay. So I applied for and completed my thesis um, during the pandemic. In all honesty, there were no alterations in the research and application process itself. I think the only change was that we maintained social distancing in the labs and wore masks. So I would advise students to not let the pandemic affect your desire to work at a lab. And, you know, if you are vaccinated and you feel safe commuting to campus, then definitely apply, do everything the same, you know, reach out to these professors, tell them that you are comfortable working right now. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot Mm -hmm. of them are actually, you know, more than happy to take you in because they want their research to continue. You know, they've been Mm -hmm. waiting to do this for over a year. So, you know, yeah. Yeah, that's I'm glad to hear that the pandemic didn't um, affect your research and your thesis. Um, But I know like a lot of animals like my lab where we, you know, labs that work with animals, you know, because Mm -hmm. it was put on hold because of the pandemic, the bouncing (laughs) back was very difficult Um, because you have to wait till they don't grow as fast as fungus. (laughs) (laughs) So um, honors thesis students have actually had a lot of like image analysis and virtual projects. but there were still virtual opportunities in that sense. So, you know, mm-hmm. students should never hesitate um, to reach out because th- that is also a valuable experience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Definitely, definitely. yeah. So congratulations so far on all your oh, accomplishments. Really? Amazing. You defended your thesis this past week. So that's just, oh. I love to see undergrads <laughs> thriving. Oh, and I have a special you. bias for York undergrads. <laughs> Um, So now, uh, what would you say are your plans after undergrad and what are some tips you would provide to students who are exploring careers in STEM? Okay, so for my plans, I do want to go to professional or graduate school. I am amid working out any details and the specific program list. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that's my plan for winter break, you know, kind of organize my life now. (laughs) (laughs) For um, future STEM students, I would say, honestly, just go for it. Take that first step. There are so many other careers in science besides, you know, doctors or engineers. Yes. So do Mm -hmm. research, attend college fairs, talk to alumni, talk to current students about their experiences. And once you kind of, you know, you figure out a possible path for yourself, I would advise you to get a mentor as early on in your academic journey as possible. So having someone who is working or studying what you want to do in the near future And that person guiding you and supporting you is an immensely positive experience. So I've actually met some incredible people on LinkedIn who have spent hours, you know, describing their jobs for me, describing the pathways they took after undergrad. And they've helped me with some of my application documents or potential application documents. And I honestly wish I reached out to these kind of people so much sooner in my academic journey. Um, So what I'm telling STEM, future STEM students, (laughs) there are some really great people in the world and please, I advise you to reach out to them. 
Mm-hmm. Oh, I can definitely agree with this. Like mm-hmm. I did the same thing. Like m- my final years of undergrad, I was like, mm-hmm. okay, networking is great, but like I really feel like I need a mentor and like I went to all these networking events cuz you know, pre-covid, mm-hmm. like you could go to like a biology meet and greet or whatever mm-hmm. and yeah like there are a lot of people out there who are willing to sit and talk to people who are younger because you know everyone just wants to see everybody succeed like mm-hmm. don't be afraid you know so like reach out to people tell them what you have in mind like obviously mm-hmm. don't attack them be like oh, i need you to guide yeah. me <laughs> yeah. yeah exactly um but you know like you know reach out to people be like hey i'm interested in the work you do like tell me more and people will talk to you about the work they do (laughs) and like you know these are things that you might not hear professors say so like you know you don't need to be by the book in terms of finding a career by the book like network plan it out everybody Mm -hmm. knows but you know Mm -hmm. yeah i definitely i guess it definitely resonated with that i wish i talked to you know professionals earlier on in my undergrad i think it just really started my third and fourth year where, mm-hmm. you know, I got advice from grad students and they were my mentors. But, um, you know, as a grad student myself, people, students actually contact me through LinkedIn and they asked me for a Zoom chat about mm-hmm. how it works. Yeah. And I have never said no. And, you know, looking back, I'm like, why didn't I do the same thing? Like, <laughs> I was just always afraid, oh, they're just going to say no, they're not going to have time. But now being yeah. in the same position, I say yes all the time. Exactly. <laughs> people love it. People love seeing each other succeed. Like I love mm-hmm. the, I love humans. They're incredible. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Special bias for STEM humans. But oh, I love God, all no. humans. We're, we're the best, you know. We got um, yeah. So now we'd like to end off our show with our final brew, which is our few last burning questions. And we would like you to answer the first thing that kind of pops into your mind. Ooh, okay. Okay, okay let's do it. <laughs> so, as a York undergrad alumni and from biomed and you know graduate student here myself i'm curious what's your favorite spot to get a quick bite on campus oh my god i was there for six months too actually at york um, <laughs> okay like, three, uh, i'm six years and counting i'm six, six months years and counting <laughs> Um, oh my god, uh, rapid fire. There's this burrito place on campus that's kind of um, on Pond Road. I can't remember the name, but it is delicious. And um, the workers there are insanely cute as well. So, you know, two burritos? Yeah. Oh, my oh it's um, near the quad, right? Like yeah, the near new residence. Why is. It's a it's the really popular burrito place and it's not popping into my head right now. <laughs> it's this weird well, that helps. It's, not, <laughs> it's on the tip of my tongue. Brain work. <laughs> the only thing I remember at York honestly is York Lanes. Like <laughs> oh, York Lanes changed so much. Like there was so much construction going on. Like they got rid of the coffee shop, the second coffee and oh, it's, it's replaced with aroma now. Oh, is it? Oh, I yes. Oh god, what? <laughs> See, that's the yeah. one place that I used to go to, and I used mm-hmm. to like, you know, talk to people there because mm-hmm. it was nice. It's so cozy. Yeah, everyone who's like new to York, they're like, "Oh, I love your mall," and I'm like, "What mall?" <laughs> <laughs> and it's York Lanes. And yeah, I'm just those like... of you who don't go to York or if you're not in Toronto, basically, York has a mall on campus. <laughs> it's not oh, a, mall. a mall. A mall is Yorkdale oh. <laughs> or Vaughn Mills. <laughs> 
Oh my gosh. Like whoever took photos of York Lanes to advertise York with did an incredible job. Like the photos <laughs> on Instagram are phenomenal. Like oh my gosh. It looks so much more cooler than it is. Like <laughs> Yo, York is wow. Okay. <laughs> we have a mall. There we you have, have it. it. Okay. Come to York because we have a mall. <laughs> Okay, second question. <laughs> Everyone has the one party trick that they can flaunt at the top of a hat, at the drop of a hat. Oh my god. Um, mine, personally, I can peel an orange in one go. <laughs> or oh, wow. You go, what is your party trick? Oh, party trick. Um, okay, so I'm a horrible dancer. I have three left feet, so that's like out of it. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to whip out a Rubik's Cube from my pocket and I'm going <laughs> to solve it under a minute. And <gasps> What? <laughs> Yeah, I recently just got down my personal time to under a minute. And wow. Yeah, so that's how I'm impressing people at the party. You know? Oh my that god. Is, that is very impressive. I think it would take me like, I probably wouldn't be able to. No, I can't. Like, no. I look at a Rubik's Cube and I'm like, mm, okay. No. <laughs> Turn it once? No. Okay, <laughs> done. <laughs> no, it's taken me years though. I think I first solved my first cube in ninth grade. And I usually try to squeeze in like, you know, a five minute practice round once a week and I just keep solving it. And then I think like a month ago, I got my time down to less than a minute and I was, I like flaunted it all over Instagram. Like it was, oh my God. (laughs) Wow. That's dedication. Dedication. Wow. Okay, our last question. So as an undergrad student, and I'm sure Guide 3 relates, we've yes. all had our share <laughs> of embarrassing lab stories, which oh, yes. is quite normal. Looking back, we all make mistakes. But what would be your most embarrassing lab story? Oh, my God. Okay, so I don't know if this is embarrassing or borderline dangerous. So um, in um, third year, we had our first microbiology lab, and it was the first time I was ever exposed to a Bunsen burner, okay? I had never used it before. <laughs> and we were not told that you're supposed to, like, you know, you're supposed to do that little screw thing, let the gas go for a while, and if you can't light it up, you have to turn it off so that the gas can, like, you know, disperse in the air. Mm-hmm. They didn't tell us this, so I just kept it on while I was trying to flame the thing. And it was on for a solid, I want to say, like, two minutes before I got it to flame. And as soon as I, like, got um, it, like, the spark happened or whatever, the entire, like, air was just, like, I see fire before my eyes. Oh, my God, <laughs> my no! My reaction, my reaction, like, everyone literally runs back, and I'm standing there staring at the fire. And my my um, TA's name was Sue, and I was literally, like, my calm, I was like, Sue, fire. Oh my god. Oh my god. Those things are so hard to use though. Like yeah. I somehow yes. learned one by the time I got to like my final year, but like I just stand there like, <laughs> like I know. You, it, you keep hearing like the metal just scraping against no. it and you're like, it's not working. It's not. <laughs> and you know what the embarrassing thing was? So this news traveled to the professor. Oh. Um and then the lecture the next day, she gave a whole five minute presentation on <laughs> That's so funny. It's okay. Uh, it's okay. Like, oh no, I caught this. I'm sorry, guys. No. I actually have an embarrassing story from microbiology as well. You know, this is why I cackled because she, she actually told me the story earlier. And as soon as you said Bunsen I'm like, oh my god. And as soon as you said microbiology, I was like, oh my god, I think there's like a like 
a theme going on. Like, yeah, no, I've done this too. <laughs> so basically, um, I, uh, you know, in microbiome, you're always uh, growing bacteria and plates and, you know, pick up agar. <laughs> and so it was in a hot water bath. And I just think of Superwoman who is resistant <laughs> to heat or I don't know what was going on in my head. So I just went to... Um, basically pick up these agar tubes with my gloves like just my normal lab gloves not like thermal gloves on the thing and is, these agar tubes okay so agar is kind of like a really hot medium yes. right mm-hmm. and the thing is these tubes are glass tubes but they're like flaming hot so like <laughs> oh, they are. You, like you touch it and it's like touching a stove right yeah. mm-hmm. yes. okay proceed <laughs> yes thanks for okay so i picked up like the first two tubes and then i dropped like i was picking up the third one and they dropped and like you know, spilled agar all over the ground. And then the TA comes running to me and she's just like, oh, you're not supposed to pick them up with your normal gloves, you know? And I was in denial. I'm like, oh, I just dropped it because it was it's wet because it was in a hot water bath. I'm like, not because it's hot. And then, you know, I was just getting like, oh, you know, lectured. And then I go back to my lab bench. And this is the hilarious part. So my friend is my friend, my lab partner. She whispers in my ear. I almost set the lab on fire. And I'm like, excuse me. And then um, basically what had happened on the other side of the lab while the TA was yelling at me was um, so in microbio, you always have to sterilize all your equipment by dipping it in alcohol and putting it over a Bunsen burner and and essentially, when she had dipped it in alcohol and, you know, kind of set the tool on fire, the flame dropped into the alcohol jar. Oh, and the jar so. went on fire. <laughs> and then um, basically someone yelled beside her, put the lid on. So she put the <laughs> lid on it and she eventually, like, put it out. But there was a fire in the lab, but I was a distraction. The TA <laughs> did not find out about this situation. It's so funny. It's like, it's like, you know how like people say like teachers have like eyes in the back of their head. Your TA did No shade to your TA. I don't remember who the TA was, but um Yeah, it was Yeah, and I, and and then my story went on with the agar tooth for so long, but like no one knew about the fire across the lab. <laughs> I think our audience, what they can take from our podcast is that microbiology is a very dangerous course. Basically. Like, <laughs> honestly, the number of times, like, I was telling Sean about this, like, when you sterilize these things, you basically put it over the flame, and you're supposed to take it out in a second. Like, yes. I put these tools in, and once, like, my loop for when you go to streak plates, mm-hmm. like, fell off. <laughs> it, like, oh. burned and fell off. So, like, it's, like, what like, true STEM is, like, all trial and error, but, like, the, if you think about it, these are, like, basically 18, 19, 20-year-old kids in front of, like, a flame. Play with fire! Flare. <laughs> <laughs> like, this is it. That's a Bunsen burner. It's just yeah. a flame and kids playing with fire, basically. And then if you don't light something on fire and your experiment works, great. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, there you have it, everyone. Today, we learned about VR. We learned about circadian rhythm. We learned about Bunsen burners and standing in front of open flames. <laughs> Thank you so much, Rashali, actually, for speaking with us today. You know, you're not that much younger than us, but it's crazy to see your experiences, especially with a lot of your undergrad being done through the pandemic. And like, you know, mm-hmm. STEM is universal. <laughs> Thanks yes. for having me. I had so much fun, guys. Yeah, it was amazing chatting with you. And now to our audience, stay tuned for our next episode that we're brewing up where we'll come back with some more STEAM content. 
Well, everyone, this is Coffee and Steam, where we choose scientific accessibility over jargon and coffee over all other beverages. Don't forget to tune into our podcast on Spotify and follow us on Instagram.